2: I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin.
1: I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C.
2: It's Friday, the 4th of September.
1: Welcome to the World Review from the New Statesman.
2: Thank you for joining us. Emily, what is the latest on the U.S. election campaign trail? We've we've got past convention season now and the candidates are off into the, the main part of the campaign. I get the sense from where I am that, that the relative message discipline that Donald Trump maintained for the RNC has rather gone out the window since we last talked.
1: I, I think he is on message but it's Trump's message. So for example, both he and Biden went to Kenosha, Wisconsin this week and Trump while there spoke not about you know injustice or racial healing but about the radical left ideology that was contributing to this violence. So that that's on message for Trump. It's just not a message that people might expect to hear from the US president.
2: I've seen some reports that the polls are beginning to narrow and indeed our own New Statesman uh, results model does does suggest a, a slightly higher chance of Donald Trump winning. Do you think there's anything in that? And, and if so, why might that be the case?
1: Yeah, I, I definitely think that there is something in that as I've, I've said on this podcast before and have written for the New Statesman that I, I think it's going to continue to be tighter as we go into the election. I think that people are less sort of shocked and horrified every day by the realities of the pandemic, and they're acclimating to this new normal, as it were. I think that although I think that a lot of Trump's language about law and order and suburban voters is disingenuous, there are some particularly white women on whom it is effective, according to recent polls that suburban white women are concerned about this law and order, which is as, again, as we wrote this week, distinct from suburban women generally who are more diverse than we imagine them to be. And I just want to convey to listeners: like, I'm not saying this to like make the horse race sound sexier, or being like, you know, to be like, stay tuned, watch what happens. I, I truly do think that there is a portion of this electorate that is either committed to voting for Trump or is is looking for a reason not to vote for Biden, and that it will be a close election.
2: Yeah, I've had I've had a couple of people ask me that when I say that. I or we think that Trump might have better chances than the polls suggest. Some suggest that that's a sort of a emotional insurance policy. You know, you might as well predict the worst thing that can happen and, and hope for the best. But I think I think here the, the facts do, do bear it out. On that point, I'd like to draw everyone's attention to the fact that the New Statesman's American Election Hub is live and rolling on our website, uh, newstatesman.com slash US hyphen election hyphen 2020. And this is where we are putting all of our content about the American election in one fantastic place. So this is where you can find all of our long reads, essays, and columns from the New Statesman Print edition. Currently up we have Emily's excellent column on American suburbia as Just mentioned and what Donald Trump gets wrong about it. We have Sarah Churchwell, who listeners may remember came on the podcast a couple of weeks ago to talk about her piece on American fascism. That's now online and you can find that on the hub as well. We also have Paul Mason, for example, on the QAnon conspiracy theory and its role on the American right at the moment. So lots on there. And as well as our uh, array of print and online written pieces and data stories and news analysis. We also have our very shiny election results model put together by our excellent data team, which draws on polling, draws on past pollster mistakes, draws on economic and issues indexes, and it together works out a probability for the results in all of the 50 states. And from that, we're making a rolling assessment of the probability of one result or another, it's very data-rich. You can explore individual states. You can explore their political histories. You can explore why we're making the judgments that we are. The, the overall probability score is updated on a daily basis. So do check it out. There's a lot to look through there. And I think it gives a very good picture of the variables at play in this election. So that's newstatesman.com slash US hyphen election hyphen 2020. And of course, there will be a podcast component of that. We're going to have our excellent data with Ben Walker, the keeper and guru of the election model on the podcast soon to talk us through it in, in detail. But in the meantime, do check it out. Newstatesman.com slash US election 2020. So with that, Emily, briefly, what was your moment of the past week?
1: On Wednesday... The German government said that Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny had been poisoned, not just poisoned, but with the chemical nerve agent from the Novichok group. So, you know, we had mentioned Navalny's poisoning previously on this podcast. And whenever something like this happens, the Russian Kremlin and the Russian government kind of tries to distance Russian authorities from the tragedy that's befallen this person. The fact that it's a a chemical nerve agent makes it much more difficult to do that. And the Kremlin, as as it were, has some explaining to do. And Jeremy, what is your moment from the past week?
2: A moment that maybe hasn't made the headlines to the same extent, but I do do think ticks the box of historically significant or potentially historically significant were some remarks reportedly made by the sort of number two official in the US State Department in a, a meeting with US allies in the Indo-Pacific region. This was Deputy Secretary of State Stephen Began, who was talking on Monday, and he suggested or he mooted a sort of shift of the so-called quad formulation, so the the gathering of India, Japan, Australia, and the US, which have been doing much more together as China has appeared more threatening and has acted more belligerently in the East and South China seas, of a long-term shift from that being a sort of informal gathering to something like an Indo-Pacific NATO. He explicitly made a comparison with NATO, which I think given the shift of US foreign policy focus from the Atlantic to the Pacific, given the kind of the, the growth of ties between countries concerned about China's rise in that region might well be historically significant. I've written about this a bit in the past for the New Statesman and I'm sure we'll come back to it again in the future. But that idea, the fact that a senior US official was even beginning to moot the idea of an Indo-Pacific NATO, I think is 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 quite an intriguing one and, and could be something we hear about more in the future. So with that, it is a great pleasure to introduce our guest this week who is Lizzie Porter. Um, Lizzie is a senior correspondent at the Iraq Oil Report. She's just moved from Beirut, where she has previously written on a freelance basis for the New Statesman, to Erbil in Iraq. Um, Lizzie, thanks very much indeed for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: And just tell us where you are now. You said that the the electricity might be a bit patchy. What's your situation?
3: Yeah, so I'm in apartment building in Erbil, which is the capital of the Kurdistan region of northern Iraq. The electricity is patchy all over Iraq, as it is in Lebanon as well, so there are fairly frequent power cuts, but the generator will come and kick in about thirty seconds to a minute after the power goes out, so that will be the reason for any stoppages in service.
2: Okay, fingers fingers crossed. it's uh, really good to have you uh, on the podcast because particularly because you've uh, written a couple of excellent pieces for the new statesman. On the Beirut blast, which I believe I'm right in saying was exactly a month ago as we record this, first of all the the initial fallout, and then also you've written for us about the um, how that has exacerbated the existing problem with COVID-19 in Lebanon. So I'd really love to talk through all of those those different issues with you. But I think perhaps perhaps you could just start us off by explaining how you experienced the blast because you were you were in central Beirut at the time, weren't you?
3: I was. My old apartment in Beirut is about a kilometer and a half away from the blast site, which was in warehouse 12 at Beirut port. The seaport is a very important piece of infrastructure in Lebanon. Uh, Around 80% of goods consumed in Lebanon come in our imports and and a large percentage of those come through the port. So this is a hugely important piece of infrastructure. It was 6.08pm. I was sitting tapping away on my laptop and I heard a noise that sounded like a very low war jet, frankly. A low rumble that I'd heard frequently on videos from Syria, airstrikes taking place in Syria. So my immediate thought is this is an airstrike. And then then a huge rumble like thunder and the whole apartment building shook as if an earthquake uh, was taking place. The door blasted off with me behind it. All our windows smashed in and the window frames. My flatmate and I and our two dogs ran out of the building and and because the initial belief was that it was an airstrike, which turned out not to be the case.
2: How long, how long did that belief prevail until people worked out what, what might have happened?
3: I think it was within 24 hours. It was very much the case that, look, there was officials came out, the interior minister came out and said, look, there was this enormous stock of ammonium nitrate at the port that has exploded. And officials said straight away, we're going to start an investigation, which is still ongoing, although senior officials who knew about the presence of that ammonium nitrate have not actually been arrested, which gives you some indication of the level of accountability that is uh, taking place here, not very much at all so far. So we we, we sheltered underneath um, some concrete and saw to our elderly neighbours to make sure everyone was okay. And, you know, it was devastating. It was chaos. It was apocalyptic. There's You can't really find superlatives enough to describe it. Just the extent of the damage has been horrific. A World Bank report this week came out and said and estimated the damages at between 3.8 and 4.6 billion. That's just physical damages to business. Obviously, economic repercussions of losses will go on beyond that. But really, with a death count of 190 now, 6,000 people injured with injuries, you know, that are lifelong. You've got people who've lost their sight, lost limbs, lost, uh, they've got permanent scarring. This is an enormous, enormous blow to Lebanon and Lebanese
1: people. I want to say first that I'm I'm just sorry that you and that the city had to go through that. I'm, I'm glad that obviously that you're all right that sounds like a horribly traumatic I don't have the words listening to you to convey how sorry I am that 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 happened and and a whole city experienced that so before launching into the next question I just wanted to (laughs) express that I mean I feel very
3: lucky that I'm alive I have my sight I have Mm -hmm. my limbs I think other friends and people I speak to are saying yeah you know we feel lucky that we're alive and that we have our limbs and that our house was damaged badly but it's still standing. We have a roof over our heads. Our landlord has made repairs, although not everyone's property owners have, have been able to do that because people don't have the money already. Lebanon was suffering an enormous mm-hmm. economic crisis. The currency had lost 80% of its value against the US dollar. So, to put that in perspective, you used to change one dollar for 1,500 Lebanese lira, and now you're changing it for 7,500. Up to eight thousand, maybe Lebanese lira. So, just people's purchasing power is massively reduced. People's ability to buy imported goods is, is is absolutely plummeted. So, people were already really, really suffering. So, to have their properties destroyed is was just devastating.
1: You already mentioned the lack of accountability, in you know, and for some in the political class, and how hard it's going to be to to rebuild. You know, to both rebuild the city and to Try to rebuild individual lives and livelihoods. Before you left, how would you have described the mood in the city? Angry and depressed mm-hmm. and exhausted.
3: People are extremely angry and, but, but also not really surprised about the lack of determination, the inertia of of authorities here to uh, really get down to business and try and repair things. People have, people have repaired things themselves. So people with the money, people with funds have repaired Mm -hmm. their shops. People have reopened shops. People have reopened bars and restaurants incredibly in some of the worst affected areas. Poor people are relying on aid, relying on food parcels, relying on friends and relatives to crowdfund. Literally people are setting up GoFundMe pages and crowdfunding to, bring in money to be able to repair their shops and businesses. We have seen a new government. The previous government resigned in the week after the blast. But the new prime minister who was um, who has been appointed, um, Mustafa Adib, the former ambassador to Germany, and he was nominated by... Another previous prime minister, Saad al-Hariri, and uh, he won 90 votes out of 128 in the Lebanese parliament for his uh, position. And he's in consultations now with the president to form his cabinet. But really, they are of the same kind of business as usual language that Lebanese people have heard millions of times before, that they have no faith in, that, you know, literally you could copy and paste his statements from from previous new prime minister's statements that we're going to get underway with forming a cabinet of technocrats that are more politically affiliated. And, you know, Lebanese people heard this at the beginning of 2020 when the previous prime minister, Hassan Diab, came in. And the country just was running to the ground at that time. In the months afterwards, the country was running to the ground with consultations with the IMF for a bailout stalling because the politicians couldn't decide and couldn't agree to give up various interests in order for reforms to take place that the IMF was demanding before giving over a bailout package like I said previously, the currency lost 80% of its value. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people lost their jobs. And this enormous explosion, which senior officials and the president knew about, uh, knew about the ammonium nitrate stored in the port and yet didn't do anything to resolve. So all of that happened on the watch of someone who made similar promises to the new prime minister, Mustafa Adib, who has uh, just come in. So people really don't have much faith in Official processes here anymore, and again having to rely on themselves. And you know, people talk a lot about Lebanese resilience and how great it is that the Lebanese always pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and and get on with things. But Lebanese people themselves are just like, no, we've had to do this because our authorities have failed us so many times. I wonder, I wonder at
2: what point you just become tired of being told your your resilience is so impressive.
3: Exactly, people are finding it patronizing, offensive. That people are just saying that all the time and and that they shouldn't have to be okay yes we're resilient but we shouldn't have to
2: be absolutely I guess the question that occurs to me you know thinking about the succession of horrific calamities that have demanded this resilience of a people that never asked to have to to find it in themselves you know the economic crisis the fact that the country was hit that Lebanon was hit so hard by the coronavirus pandemic the, the political mm. crises. Could you sort of put that for us in a bit of a, a historical perspective? Because, you know, Lebanon or Beirut certainly was known in the sort of 50s and 60s as the Switzerland of the Middle East, wasn't it? As a, as, a, as a particularly economically and socially developed part of that part of the world as a sort of successful merchant society. You know, Beirut was known for its sort of its glamour and its, uh, its modernity. Could you give us a, a sort of a a sort of whistle stop tour, as it were, of, of the time between now and then? I mean, what what was it that has sent Lebanon down this path to where it is now? Mm.
3: So, yeah, you you're right. I mean, in, in the 1950s and 60s, Lebanon was a, a new state free of the French mandate, again, its independence in the mid-1940s. You had Investment coming in, and in this sort of period of the Middle East being divided up into newly formed states, in a similar period, Syria was it was a new state. So was Israel. You had Iraq. There was a feeling of there was building of, of national pride and economic independence. So you had things like international fairgrounds being built in uh, northern Lebanon. There's a fantastic place called the uh, Rashid Karame International Fair, which was built and yet never finished because then the uh, civil war started. And the sort of sparking point of the civil war is, is if you speak to different people, they have different views on it. But essentially, you had you had conflicts happening in the 1950s as well. And I think people often forget the conflicts of the, the late 1950s in causing Lebanon to become disrupted to the extent that it did. But essentially, in 1975, you have Palestinians who were kicked out of Jordan in Lebanon, the the Fayyadine, so Palestinian resistance fighters, in Lebanon, you had Christian factions and you had Muslim, uh, so Sunni and Shia Muslim factions as well. And this is a 15-year-long civil war. So the Syrians come in in 1976. The Israelis come in really in 1982 and invade to with, with help of uh, Christian uh, Lebanese militias to try and take parts of Beirut. In all of this, there are massacres that take place and uh, assassinations of leaders and series of, uh, I don't want to say tit for tat, I want to say event and retaliation, event retaliation killings that go on. Uh, you then, in 1990, the, the war ends with the Taif Agreement signed at Taif in Saudi Arabia, hence the name. That s- supposedly puts an end to the violence. The problem is you put an end to the violence, but the way that was done was that the, the warlords who ran each of these sectarian militias, they essentially take off their camouflage and put on suits. They agreed to absolve themselves. There's an amnesty law that basically says, like, these guys can't be tried for any of the crimes that they committed. So as a, an example of that is uh, Lebanon's current president, Michel Aoun, was an army commander in the war years, and was involved in military operations throughout the war. Other leaders who are still politically involved, people like Walid Jumblat, people like Nabi Beri, who are all leaders of still functioning uh, political parties here in Lebanon. So they all really turned from military political leaders into sort of uh, members of parliament and uh, heads of the various blocs. Just on
2: that on that point, before we proceed onwards, this, this is really useful mm. explanation. What role, both before, during, and after the civil war, did the peculiarly Lebanese structure of or system of dividing up power play? Because it is it is one of the striking characteristics of Lebanese politics, isn't it? That there there is this, or there has been since I think I'm right to say the 1940s, a system where you know the, the president has to be a a Maronite Christian, the speaker has to be a, a Shia Muslim, a PM has to be a Sunni. Mm. It is often claimed that that system of sort of carve-ups has both fueled sectarianism rather than creating bridges between different or sort of balances between different parts of the population, but also has, has, has led to the sort of networks of patronage and corruption that have, that have driven a lot of this. I mean, what, what's your perspective on that, that explanation for Lebanon's woes?
3: Absolutely. So you correctly say there that the political system is a confessional-based system. So, as you say, the three main political positions, the Prime Minister, the President and the Speaker of the Parliament are divided up in by confession, um, by, by sect. And it's, it's not just at that top level. Uh, when you have elections here, you will have seats for, for example, a Sunni Muslim, a Shia Muslim, an Orthodox Christian, a Maronite Christian, and the person who is going to that seat has to belong to that sect. And that also plays out within ministries, within uh, public institutions, you will have to have equal numbers of people, or or not equal necessarily, but uh, a quota of people from each sect. And there are 18 sects in Lebanon represented in those institutions and people will be employed not necessarily on merit but because of their sect or because of their connections to a particularly powerful sectarian leader within a specific state institution. And there is all this talk of sectarianism and, and it very much does dictate things to a certain extent, but you've got a lot of people in Lebanon now who who aren't religious or or even if they are religious, they don't want their opportunities to be defined by their religion. Their religion will be a private thing, you know, that they go to church or go to mosque, but they don't want their job opportunities and people to judge them based on who they are. Uh, They want to be based on merit. They want to be judged on the way they deal with other people rather than by their religious identity. So it very much has played into public and and private lives here. and, And people are struggling to get around it, I think, because there are still those parties that I mentioned that were involved in the civil war and were part of the agreement that stopped the civil war are still around. And the the same figures, the same faces are still around, although there has been talk over the past couple of years of new technocratic, non-sectarian cabinet leaders, ministers. The reality is that The president, as I mentioned, Michel Aoun, uh, is still around. uh, The Speaker of the Parliament, Nani Beri, who's a very controversial figure here in Lebanon. He has been in his position since 1990. And so with with every attempt to challenge him has has failed. So it's very difficult uh, to try to change the system when the people who, on the status quo, the people who guard the status quo, are so, so attached to their positions.
2: Absolutely. And just to sort of, to bring us up to, as it were, the eve of the explosion, is it fair to say then that this system of carve-ups, the system of patronage, the fact that you have these same faces recurring, created the failures that caused... The woes of the economic crunch, the the failure to grip COVID, administrative failings like failing to store or move the ammonium nitrate in 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 the harbor in Beirut harbor. Can you draw a direct line from those things to those failings and and difficulties? I
3: think it's one factor, but I think there are other things as well. I, I mentioned previously the end of the civil war, but after the civil war, you had huge rebuilding and a kind of development of a sort of crony capitalism network that not only did you have these political parties, but then you had businessmen with money tied to them and able to rebuild and build and operate based on their political ties and and what we call waster here, which literally means kind of a tie or a link or a connection to someone and it basically allows you it's the kind of guy you know that will allow you to get away with building something or doing something that is not really allowed by the book but because you know him he'll he'll sign off off on it for you so you kind of had sort of unchecked development and on the financial and economic side sort of what a lot of economists call a kind of ponzi scheme essentially that allowed the banks to earn massive profits and to lend to the state. And build an artificially beneficial exchange rate against the dollar, which allowed imports to be artificially cheap, which meant that you never really had to redevelop Lebanese industry properly after the war. Which is because, oh, we can rely on imports, so we don't have to rebuild the economy, of course, with various outside factors reduction in remittances from the diaspora in the Gulf, for example, when, when the economy there was hit in the late 2000s, that meant that you're suddenly you cannot keep up this unrealistic exchange rate, which means that your economy collapses, which is now what we're seeing. So uh, I think the sectarianism is one factor, but you also had linked to it Lebanon's kind of current capitalism economic structure, which played a, a huge role.
1: That actually brings us nicely into our next segment, which is called You Ask Us. We got this question from an anonymous listener who wants to know, does Lebanon have a path forward that does not end in collapse? Obviously a heavy question, but Lizzie, will will turn to you to try to lift it.
3: Yeah, I mean, I've been speaking to people today on this and Lebanese people, some of them say, we're trying not to think about it, but we don't know. People are protesting and ordinary people have taken up the initiative with regards to clearing up physically, shoveling glass off the streets when state institutions didn't come and and do so. One thing that economists and experts and analysts are pushing for is an IMF bailout. But the problem with that is that talks that were ongoing with the IMF previously stalled because politicians, uh, ministers, couldn't agree to the reforms that the IMF is demanding for that to happen in order to unlock a bailout, essentially, that Lebanon needs to, in order to refinance the banks. The IMF is demanding various reforms to the electricity sector, which $2 billion a year is required in subsidies to the electricity sector, which still doesn't work. You know, you still get at least three hours power cuts every day
2: in Beirut. So the talk stalled. Do you think those demands are reasonable? I mean it, I can see why from the point of view of the IMF you'd want to push the Lebanese state in the direction of reform but what also wonders is now really the moment I mean is you know can you really expect that from a state that is you know almost literally in tatters?
3: Yes, I think you can. I mean because this is not like this is a new demand. For years international donors so foreign governments people like the IMF and the World Bank have been saying, look, money is reliant on reforms. And there was a big conference, the Cedricotter Conference, which you saw foreign governments pledge billions of dollars for Lebanon and and say, look, you know, we are willing to help you out and people want to help out Lebanon, really because Lebanon is key strategically. It's next to Syria. There are military bases around in, in Cyprus. It is a very... Tense area of of the region. So foreign governments have a reason to want to keep Lebanon stable. But they're saying, look, we are not going to do that unless you reform. And, And this is not like this is a new thing. This is not like this could not have been done five years ago. One plan now is Emmanuel Macron, the French president, who has visited twice since the blast a month ago. Last week he was here and set out a sort of roadmap for Lebanon. And and you might, some people are saying that why is France getting involved to this extent? Is it really their business? On the other hand, people are saying, well, look, if our leaders aren't going to do it, then the French should. I think this very swift government formation we saw after the blast relative to previous lapses in government that have taken months to resolve was because the French president was on his way. And Lebanese leaders were very aware that it would look quite bad if, if uh, he turned up and we didn't have anything up our sleeves. So the French roadmap has set out September 30th as a date for resuming those talks with the International Monetary Fund and then the adoption of various laws, an audit of the central bank, power sector reform, an electricity regulator by mid-October. I mean, that's very, very ambitious, whether a new government which hasn 't even been formed yet will mm. be able to do that is very, very debatable. This roadmap is also saying there 's going to be a twenty twenty one budget to be passed by december thirty first Lebanon has gone for months and months uh, in in the past without a budget which means allowances can't be distributed, payments are going to be delayed. And, and further down the line, you have uh, electoral reform, which I, I mean, I do think electoral reform is key, because people are saying, look, we want new leaders, we want a totally new system. Part of the problem is that people cannot elect the people that they would like to elect, because the electoral law does not allow for it, because it is based on, along confessional lines, various other intricacies of the electoral law, which mean people are saying, well, look, I don't want to vote for any of the guys who are standing. It's very, very difficult to see that Lebanon is going to be able to enact any of these kind of proposals on time. And the more that happens, the more collapse looks more likely. But what exactly the features of collapse are? I mean, a lot of people would say it already has collapsed.
1: Mm -hmm. I have I have two quick follow ups for you. The first is where do you see refugees fitting into the way forward? If there, if there is, I mean, there's, what, over a million Syrian refugees in Lebanon, a country of roughly 6 billion. If you could speak a bit about how they've been affected by all this and, and what happens to the refugee population moving forward. Absolutely. So yes, you've
3: got around a million. No one really knows because there are lots of unregistered and some have gone back to Syria despite the ongoing conflict there. You've also got um, hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees, who've some of whom have lived their whole lives in Lebanon. They don't know Palestine, the Palestinian territories, Israel. They have been enormously affected, massively so. There were dozens of uh, Syrian victims' deaths amongst the Syrian community in, uh, as a result of the blast, devastating stories of people living in some of the... There's, a, there's an area called uh, Karantina, Right next to the port, which is is a really poor area and has been neglected for decades, there were Syrians there and and in districts surrounding that area. Syrians who've gone through seven years of war and they come here hoping to find security and people have lost multiple family members in this blast. They are also discriminated against when it comes to aid. Horrible stories coming out of Syrians not being allowed aid packages that have been given out to people who don 't really need them. I mean I know foreign NGO workers and you know the, the, the Lebanese army turns up at their door with a box of bread and I think it's thinking What's in the world we really don 't need this, whereas Syrian refugees are being denied similar aid. You also have Palestinian camps, for example the COVID cases that have really spiked since the blast happened. Palestinians live in some of the worst conditions in Lebanon, in overcrowded camps where there is not really any security. Job opportunities are very, very limited. They don't enjoy various rights to own property, for example. They live in cramped conditions where COVID risk factors are enormous. So I I won't be surprised if we... I mean, already various areas where there are Palestinian camps have been put on sort of watch lists for coronavirus uh, hotspots. So that is another risk they are exposed to. So really, if, if you imagine kind of every risk factor, the Palestinian and Syrian refugee communities are among the most vulnerable to all of them.
1: We've been speaking, I mean, throughout this podcast about certainly the refugee population, but also people in Beirut, people in Lebanon more generally, who have have been forced to take more than any people, I think it's fair to say, should have to take, right? Who have been more resilient than anybody should have to be. Ooh. You just left Lebanon. And I was wondering if as you were leaving, there was some, obviously when you leave a country or a city or any place, there's not necessarily any one thought that, that you have. But I will nevertheless ask you if there was one sort of, Note of caution that you kept thinking of, or one particular fear, or one I don't know, glimmer of hope, or, or, or just one concept that, that stuck with you that you would be willing to share with our listeners. I
3: just feel quite sad seeing a place that's been very dear to me. That uh, Lebanese friends of mine are really struggling financially, people have already lost their jobs, have now lost physical property. Mm-hmm. Seeing a place. Being broken in front of your eyes physically mentally people look drawn and tired and that's something that you can't really get over um, just there are places that are just physically a mess that shouldn't have to be that you know once kind of smart streets and everywhere's feels degenerated mm-hmm. increasingly de- de- degenerated because even in areas where that, that weren't affected by the blast people can't afford to repair the house people can't afford to repair the pavement the state isn't coming around and fixing the streetlights. or there's a part of the corniche uh, where the seafront corniche where I go running that was damaged in a storm last year and, and it hasn't been repaired so there's sort of big cordoned off area these things are kind of signs of how it's just breaking up piece by piece and every time this happens it, it's more and more difficult for people to carry on. And I worry also about the long term mental health effects of people who are going to be traumatized yet again, having lived through wars, but also these more daily things like uh, the economic collapse, the fact that you couldn't, you used to be able to buy nice things and you can no longer buy nice things. And, and just having to live on, you know, people who are, you know, relatively you know, lower to middle class families are now relying on food boxes, you no longer have a middle class. That's really devastating.
2: Thank you for for painting such a moving and detailed picture of the the mood there. I, I can imagine you must have left with 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 some degree of of melancholy.
3: Absolutely, I think a, a great degree of melancholy.
2: Well, with with that, our final segment is to look ahead to the the following week, and with your eye on Lebanon or Iraq or the Middle East in general, I think we'll start with you, Lizzie. What 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 do you think aside from the ongoing human tragedy and and political drama in Lebanon, uh, what will you be paying attention to in the next week?
3: There are a couple of things. It's 50 years since Black September in 1970, which was a conflict between the Jordanian governments and Palestinians who had left the West Bank, come into Jordan. In early September 1970, you had a series of hijacks of planes, traveling to the US and London by the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which is a Palestinian armed group, which still exists in Lebanon. Actually, it's one of the myriad security forces in and political forces in the Palestinian camps in Lebanon. So it fought, fought against the Jordanian authorities and was eventually kicked out into Lebanon, which was one of the <laughs> They were one of the actors in the 1975 to 1990 civil war in Lebanon. So we'll probably see kind of commemoration notices coming out and those political wings of of, uh, the actors saying, you know, we're still fighting for uh, the Palestinians. Whereas, you know, a lot of Palestinians are disengaged and disillusioned with, with those actors, partly because they're still living in dire circumstances in camps across the region and shanty towns and camps across the region and and don't see much benefit from those political and military actors that claim to represent them also we've got to remember that those acts and um, events of september 1970 really shaped what a lot of people think of palestinians which is not how palestinians see themselves you know those hijackings you know are sort of etched into kind of i, I don't want to say western but popular memory for a lot of people, you know, as Palestinian resistance fighters, as terrorists, which clearly is not what most ordinary Palestinians are. And Palestinians have had to kind of struggle against that, whilst also being like, look, we are not treated fairly. At the moment, we've got the Israelis and the UAE normalising ties and uh, building trade ties, you know, uh, the first flight from uh, Tel Aviv into the UAE took off last week. So, you know, in all of this, it's like, well, how are Palestinians actually going to benefit from this? It's often felt like their cause has sort of been forgotten. And, and wherever they are based, whether it be in refugee camps in Lebanon, uh, Jordan, Syria, or, or elsewhere, in amongst all of the the talk of UAE and in Israel currently developing ties to the greater good well is that actually going to improve the lot of everyday palestinians and i think i think the answer is is maybe not thank you for that
2: emily what will you be looking ahead to next week
1: at the beginning of this podcast i mentioned Navalny and his poisoning that has really galvanized the or to some extent galvanized the at least the uh, the liberal opposition in Russia. Additionally, there have been protests in Russia's uh, Far East. We've spoken about this with our colleague Irovak on the podcast before. And I will be watching to see whether these two things kind of come to a head on September 13th in Russia's local elections. You know, I think if you watch Eastern European politics generally and, and Russian politics in particular in protest movements in those various places, it's kind of like, okay, will this be the time? No. you know, I, And I say that to say that I don't think that September 13th will come and Russia will become this liberal place. But I do think that it's it's nevertheless an election worth watching. So I will be. Jeremy, for what moment will you be looking out next week?
2: Uh, incidentally, we will, we will uh, cover the results of those regional elections afterwards uh, on this podcast. Um, I'll be looking out for a speech that Greece's Prime Minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, is giving next Saturday on the 12th of September. It's a, a, an annual speech at the Thessaloniki International Fair. And it comes amid extreme tensions between, uh, not so far away from Lebanon, and as part of the broader widespread insecurity and uh, crisis at the moment in the Eastern Mediterranean, and that's the show, showdown between Greece and Turkey over gas exploration rights in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, as we record this podcast, the two sides' uh, talks have been uh, have, have appeared to have, if not broken down, then been suspended over a war of words. The temperature has been heating up a great deal. And there is an expectation that Mitsotakis in his speech, which is primarily about the economy will um, not only increase spending on defence, but couch that in angry language about Turkey. So it could be another landmark in that important developing story. Uh, So I'll be looking out for that. And with that, uh, all that remains is for me to say a very big thank you indeed to Lizzie for joining us, particularly so soon after your your move to Iraq, Lizzie, and to share in such moving depth your 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 thoughts on on Beirut and Lebanon. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, listeners. You will be able to find both of Lizzie's excellent pieces, recent pieces for the New Statesman, on the web page for this episode of the podcast, which will go up along with all of our other. Podcasts and links to our pages on Acast, Apple, Spotify, and Google on our website, which is New slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast. So do take a look there at this episode page and read Lizzie's pieces. And perhaps while you're on our website, have a look once more at our US election page, newstatesman.com slash US hyphen election hyphen. 2020.
1: If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave us a review and also tell your friends, enemies, and casual acquaintances about it.
2: Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening. And until next week.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices